Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Accordingly, the scriptures move us in many places to acknowledge and confess our sin. Therefore, I call upon you, as many as are here present, to accompany me with a pure heart and humble voice unto the throne of heavenly grace. Come, let us worship and bow down. Lord, we come before you confessing, because every one of us has sinned, and the wages of sin is death. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. All of us have turned aside. Together we have become useless. But thanks be to God. He so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Arise then and hear the good news. Brothers and sisters, your sins are forgiven and your lives are rescued in our Lord Jesus Christ. Believe this and rejoice. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ is risen. What a joyous occasion. What a high Sabbath we have to celebrate today. On Sunday, April 7th, in the year of our Lord, 30, God resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead. And this we remember, and this we proclaim, and this we celebrate every year on this day at Easter. Praise God for his victory over our greatest enemy and for changing the tides of history, giving mankind the reins of power in Jesus Christ. For surely we were created a little lower than the angels, and surely Jesus Christ, a man, now sits at God's right hand with all power and authority and might in heaven and earth, and he shall remain there till all things are subdued under his feet. In Christ we have the fulfillment of all the Sabbaths and the promises and the covenants of Scripture. He is the reality that all of the Old Testament system points to. As we've been studying worship and Leviticus, we've seen many covenantal patterns emerge. 
threefold, fivefold, and sevenfold patterns. One of the distinctives of these patterns is a forward-looking anticipation of God's work, His continuing work in the world, His plan for the world. There's a covenantal succession that declares His might and His direction of history. Our text today comprises the last section of the book of Leviticus, the fifth division. And as we're going to see, it has a pronounced interest in the future, in, in covenantal succession. In the first section of Leviticus, God's people were given the sacrificial system as a means of holiness. In the second, their priests were made the mediators of this system. The third section, we were called to be holy as God is holy. In last week, in the fourth section, we saw this sevenfold pattern of annual Sabbaths. This reminder of, of God's work that imprinted the covenant on His holy people through their annual celebration of the redemption that God had accomplished for them. So part of this anticipation, this future focus of the covenant, lies in the overflow of God's life. This is evident in creation. God didn't need the world. He didn't need mankind. He didn't need to make us for something missing in Himself. It, the world, all of creation, overflowed from God's grace and His love. And this is evident in this sevenfold pattern, which really is the threefold pattern repeated. We see three and three and then plus one. The threefold pattern reiterated plus one. So if we'll look at the days of creation, in the first three days, God creates light. He creates the He separates the firmament from the, from the waters, the sea. And he, and, he, and he creates the land and the plants. He separates the land from the waters. And then in the, 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 the next three days, he puts lights to govern the day and the night that he created on the first day. And then he creates fish and birds to fill the firmament and the sea. And then he creates those who dwell on the land and live on the plants, man and animals. And then he adds a day, a day of rest. The day that God is looking forward to. The day that, that this anticipation that God has built into his covenant of, of creation, into his covenant world. Similarly, as we reviewed the Sabbaths, we, we, we reviewed the Sabbaths last week, and we saw that there were seven Sabbaths every year. But this week, we're going to see that there's a future focus that that is um, that we'll see the future focused reviewing of Sabbath in the Sabbath years and the years of Jubilee. So he's given us this sevenfold pattern in, in the annual Sabbath, and then he says, and then plus one every seven years, you're going to have a whole year that's a Sabbath year. And after seven Sabbath years, you're going to have a whole extra Sabbath year that's a year of jubilee. So God provides in this Sabbath keeping the, for the rich, His rich presence among His people. The continuance of their holiness. He's looking forward to them remaining holy. For them, the, the, the land staying holy. It's about consecration of them and their land in the future. 
the continuance. And, and He gives them a principle of justice for the future. He gives them promises of blessings and threats of curse for the future, depending on their keeping of the covenant. And He gives them the, the provision for the covenant's trustees, the priests. So our text this morning is Leviticus chapter 24 through chapter 27. And, uh, and we're going to turn there now. And as I've just said, we see there that it, ha- it comes in a covenantal pattern for the future. It's a five-fold pattern, and it's outlined in your bulletins, where God initiates, He provides for the separation of sinners from His holy people in the future. He provides for the consecration of the land, and He provides for blessing and judgment, and He provides for the, the future of, of the people that are supposed to be administering this covenant for the priests. So chapter 24 starts with God's initiation for the future, where God commands the care of the lamps of the tabernacle, which burned before the Lord's presence. And we see the command for, in verses 1 through 4, we, we, we see this command for a continual burning of the lamps and, and Aaron's continual maintaining of the lamps. In fact, the word continually occurs three times in those verses. It's this constant care of these lamps that would burn this pure olive oil for a light in God's presence in the, tamp- in, in, in the, uh, in the tabernacle. And it is a statute forever. Again, this, this long-standing forward focus. Similarly, in verses 5 through 9, we see the organization of the bread in the table, on the, on, in, the, in the, the gold table in the tabernacle. There were... There's a, a, a command that Aaron would take 12 loaves and organize them uh, on, the, on the table in the tabernacle. This is called a perpetual statute. A perpetual statute. Um, so God, they would put the 12 cakes there with frankincense on them, and they were arranged by the priest, and those were holy unto God. Now these commands are shadows pointing to the eternal presence of the Spirit and the Son with the Father. Oil in Scripture is associated with the Holy Spirit and His work. And Jesus is the bread of life. These perpetual and continual statutes indicate the name of God, of the God whom we serve. So in the tabernacle was represented the Christian God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The perpetual and the continual statutes indicate that name, and that leads us to the next section of our text, the penalty for blaspheming that name. Because God's name is holy, we may not take it in vain. Chapter 24, verses 10 through the end. Now this section delivers to us the principle of justice, by which the holiness of the people of God was to be maintained into the future. Again, forward focus, separation of sinners from God's people into the future. Now, when, as we read through the text, we have a tendency to take these things as, huh, that's weird. Why does he go from this to that to, the, to this? But, but his, the point is this, is that once he's now providing for the future, and, he's, and he said, my name will continually be in your presence, don't go blaspheming that name. Because the consequences for that is death. 
And it's much more than just an interesting story about the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian who got in a fight in the, in the, in the camp, and then he, took, he blasphemed God's name, and they set him aside, and they asked Moses uh, to inquire to, go, to God, what should we do with this guy? It, it is interesting. It's an interesting story. That's how we normally take it. It's verses 10 through 16 where we get that story. And God gives them the answer, along with all the principles of justice. And so, so what we, we end up with here is a, a chiasm in which God tells us about how his people are to be judged. And, and he, does, he goes far beyond addressing this specific problem of blaspheming his name. He starts there, and he works from the greater sin to the lesser, and then he goes back from the lesser sin to the greater. And the end of the chapter is then stoning him for his blaspheming of God's name. So the greater sin that he addresses first is, is the, this blasphemy, and its, and its uh, penalty is a death sentence with prejudice. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a very distinct and clear and commanding uh, uh, condemnation of this individual. They were, there was public execution by stoning, and the witnesses would lay hands on his head, and they would throw the first stones. It, it, you make a statement with this sin. Then he goes from that in verses uh, 10 to 16 to verse 17, where he says uh, that destroying the image of God... Murder is also a capital crime. So, so don't blaspheme God's name, and then don't mar his, his image in other men. So murder is a capital crime. Then he goes from that to whoever kills a creature of God must make that right. So if you, whoever kills an animal must restore it. It's, it's, it's a, this is about the, the, the value of life. And then after he's gone that way from, from blasphemy to murder to, to, to killing of animals, he gives us the basic principle of justice. It's called, in, in legal terms or in theological terms, it's called the lex talionis. Um, and, and, and what that means is this. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Fracture for fracture. Life for life. That is, that's the basic principle of justice. God creates the world and he makes life, uh, he sanctifies life. And so the basic principle of justice is, is that if somebody takes something, then, then he, might, he must restore it, make it good. If somebody murders, that person must pay with his life. If somebody blasphemes the holy name of God, you make an example of him. The essence of justice from this holy God must be honored in word and deed by his people and bearing his name in vain then is a capital crime and to the Jews it was the worst crime. And remember, this was the very sin that Jesus was accused of, blaspheming the name of God. And if he were guilty, then his sentence would have been just. If Jesus truly had blasphemed the name of God, there was nothing wrong with what happened at the cross. But he was innocent, and therefore everything is wrong with what happened at the cross. So God gives us this principle of justice for, for the governing of his people in the future. Chapter 25 covers the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee, another Sabbath year. 
And the purpose was for the consecration of the land and the re-consecration consecration of his people. And, the, and more specifically, it's the continued and perpetual consecration of the land and his people. So every seven years was a Sabbath year. And the Israelites were to demonstrate their faith by not harvesting the crops. They, they were supposed to allow the land to go fallow for the year, not to plant seeds, not to harvest the crops. They could eat what grew in the wild they could, as they were walking through the fields. If anything grew out there, they could eat that. But they were not permitted to go out with a sickle or a scythe and to harvest it and bring it into the barns. So every seven years they were supposed to do this. And after 49 years, seven sevens, the Israelites were to observe a second Sabbath year in the 50th year. The year of Jubilee, verses 10 through 12 of uh, chapter 25. You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee to you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine. For it is the jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce from the field. So in this year, all the land was reset to the original families, the original, original owners. So accordingly, the value of property in Israel was supposed to be judged in accordance with the number of years until the Jubilee. So if you sold a piece of property, or if you rented a piece of property to somebody else, the value of that property was, was valued based on how many years of of the harvest they would get from it until the, the Sabbath year. The next section of this chapter answers an objection that is pretty practical and obvious. Okay, God, we're not supposed to plant crops or harvest them. Then how are we going to survive? How are we going to eat? And we read in verses 20 through 22. If you say... What shall we eat in the seventh year, since we shall not sow or gather in our produce? Then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce enough for three years. And you shall sow in the eighth year, and eat old produce until the ninth year, until its produce comes in. You shall eat of the old harvest. So the answer is belief and trust. If you will obey, I will provide. I will give you what you need, and it will be abundant blessing. The remainder of the chapter addresses considerations regarding the year of Jubilee. Redeeming property, how does that work? You know, what, what's, what about the specifics of renting versus selling? Or if, uh, how, you know, what about in the city or outside of the city? What about the, the, the Levites' property? And, and there's, there's just very specific rules about how they were to do this. And God provides for them these rules so that they would know how to do this well. There's, there's instruction about showing mercy and generosity and assisting the poor. So if a poor man was to, to, to if a poor man lived in, in the country um, or in, in, the, in the nation, they wouldn't be allowed to, to charge usury for him. They wouldn't be able to oppress those who, be, who uh, were under um, judgment or under um, the consequences of poor choices or lack of wisdom or God's providence. 
they were intended to be provided for by the people. They were supposed to be kind and good to them. And then there were laws about slavery and how slavery was to be practiced. And the emphasis there is that you do not, you do not take slaves of the Israelites. And those who become slaves you, must be treated with mercy and with grace. So that, and if they can redeem themselves, by all means, let them redeem themselves. Jubilee, the year of Jubilee was about reversing the rot of oppression in the future. Because the world has fallen, because we are sinful people, we need that annual day of atonement. But we also need this seven-year Sabbath in which the land must be consecrated and we must recognize it belongs to God. And we need this every 50 years to be reset for God to, to say, no, I want you to be a free people, a holy and free people, a, a people that can rejoice. A jubilee means rejoicing. It's about reversing that, that rot. So it was consecrating the land, verses 23 and 24. The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in the land of your possession you shall grant redemption of the land. And then also in verse 38, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So God says, don't put this land, my land, under, under the oppression and subjection that it was, it was to, under before. And so while it was also, it was, it was about uh, redeeming the land, it was also about the redemption and the setting free of God's people in the consecrated land. Verses 54 and 55. Here we have, he's speaking of a Jew who had been sold into slavery. And if he is not redeemed in these years, the, the years, he's talking about the ways he could be redeemed prior to the year of Jubilee. If he's not redeemed in these years, then he shall be released in the year of Jubilee. He and his children with him. For the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. And then chapter 26 is the fourth section of this portion of Leviticus. And it is a, a declaration of judgment and blessing for the future. Promises of future blessing if the people would be obedient. And future cursing if they refused to be obedient and keep the laws of God's covenant. God knew that they needed this... Uh, oh, sorry. So future blessing, future cursing, and there was a promise of future redemption. Subsequent redemption if they fell away. So he says, he says look, if you're, if you're good, I will bless you. If you're bad, I, I will curse you and, and abolish you from the land. But... If you humble yourselves, I will redeem you. Now, given our knowledge of the history of Israel, this section was more prophecy than promise. Moses wasn't saying, uh, well, if this happens, then this, and if this happens, then that. This is more like, this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and then you'll need redemption, and I will do that too. More about prophecy than promise. God knew what he was about at the outset. He knew that he had to provide this subsequent redemption. God, he knew the need that the people had for a savior and a redeemer. And it all points to Jesus. 
Notice how glorious the promises of the blessings in the covenant are. Uh, I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. God here, close with us. And notice the completeness of the redemption. If they confess their iniquity and their hearts are humbled, this is what he says. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them, to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But for their sake I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So God's promise of redemption is based on nothing less than his holy name. I am Yahweh. Now the last chapter of this section of the book is all about succession. And interestingly, interestingly enough, in many of the commentaries, you'll, they think that it's, a, it's an add-on. It's, just, it's tacked on. But not so. It fits perfectly in this covenantal structure of God's provision for the future of his covenant people and specifically his provision for the, the keepers of that covenant, the, for the priests. So this chapter is all about the redemption of the holy things and provision for the priests. So he covers voluntary gifts to the, to the, to the priests or to the Levites. Um, in, uh, in, in, uh, and he covers voluntary gifts, which are the paying or redeeming of vows. So people could make vows, which people did regularly in the Old Testament, and usually it would be in a time of hardship, or, if, Lord, if you do this for me, then I, I will dedicate this to you. I, I, will, I will do this. So they would make these vows, and then they would, they would be called upon to keep these vows. And they could either pay what they vowed, or if they decide after they make this vow that they want to keep what it is they had vowed, they could redeem what they had vowed. Um, if they wanted to do that, so they said, I'm, I'll give you this lamb, and then they decide, well, I don't want to give this lamb, I want to give another one, then they would have to pay a lamb plus one-fifth. So in order to redeem, you would have to add 20% to, to redeem. And so you could, you could vow people, you could vow animals, and you could vow houses and the fields. And that's covered in verses uh, 1 through 25, what people would voluntarily give. And then in verses 26 through 33, the, the, the chapter covers what people owed. Because they are God's holy people, God sets aside some things for himself. So the firstborn of all animals were owed to the priests. The devoted things were owed to the priests. And the tithe were, was owed to the priests. Now... This is obviously about God's provision for the future for his, his, his tabernacle, for his, for his um, covenant keepers. Now, hopefully by now it's clear that this whole section that we've been talking about is about succession. God is interested in providing for the continual and perpetual holiness of his people. And now all of this covenant is a shadow and a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. And thus we come to our consideration of Easter and the future. The first thing we find is that God initiates. 
as God provided for the continual burning of the oil in the tabernacle, Good Friday and Easter paved the way for our reception of the Holy Spirit. God puts the oil of the Spirit in our hearts, and His cleansing fire burns there perpetually. He's interested in our future, and He's going to put His name on us and with us. This is the beginning of the Christian life. In John 16, Jesus said it was better for Him to depart so that He might send the Spirit to us, and that the Spirit will guide us into all truth. He will guide us into all truth. So because Jesus died, we could receive the Spirit. And because we, re we have the Spirit, we know that God will work in us holiness, knowledge, and understanding, and wisdom. And Jesus tells us He will always be with us in the Great Commission. And that's about the Spirit being here with us, communicating Him to us. Likewise, the bread of life is always in the tabernacle. Jesus Christ is always in God's presence in heaven, and he's always with us. We are his tabernacle. It works both ways. Jesus is in heaven advocating for us forever, and we are his tabernacle, and he lives in us by his spirit. Lo, I am with you always till the end of the age, Jesus tells us. And this presence of God his, his word is communicated to us by means, by means of word and sacrament, in preaching and in, in, and in the supper. God is, is given to you, Jesus. We and so Jesus is our representative, as those 12 loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel in, in the tabernacle. Jesus is our representative in heaven of, uh, advocating for us. And this is for our blessing for the future. If we sin, we have an advocate who will intervene on our behalf. Next, in Easter, we see the persistent separation of sin. So when God separated out the sinner with the blasphemer in Israel, in Easter, we see the separation of sin from us. God never backs off the death penalty for sin. He never says, okay, I used to say that, you, that in order for sin to be uh, paid for, you know, you had to die. But now you don't. That's not what God says. He says, no, death must occur and Jesus does it for us. And that's why Jesus died. But in the new reality, the new covenant, in, in, our, in our new uh, revelation that God gives to us in Jesus Christ, we continually come back to the cross, and the cross perpetually confronts our sin. Constantly. So we were justified there, and we are being and will be sanctified there. That one sacrifice for sin atones for all sin. So as the son of an Israelite woman with an Egyptian father was brought before the Lord to render judgment, all men will be brought before the judgment seat of God for the verdict of his judge, Jesus Christ. This is the reality of the world, but it is also the driving force behind the good news of the gospel. 
we must be more motivated in our missions, in our, in our sharing the gospel with the lost. Because it's true that all men will die. And it's also true that every man who dies will answer to God for everything he's ever done. And he's lost without Jesus. He's lost without the knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Our sin can be separated from us so that we don't need to pay for it in eternity in hell. That's good news. And we need to see it as such and embrace it as such. And this is, this is the glory of Easter. In the resurrection, death loses his sting and Hades loses the victory forever. Moreover, all Sabbath and all Jubilee are present here in Jesus at Easter. As Sabbath years and the year of Jubilee declared the land consecrated, at Easter, God declares the world consecrated. Easter changes the Sabbath. Instead of the last day of the week, it's the first day of the week. Jesus comes proclaiming healing and doing healing to the sick and the lame and the demon-possessed and life to the dead. Jesus declares liberty to the captives and freedom to the oppressed. That's what Sabbath is all about. That's the, the reality that we live in post-resurrection. Is Every day is jubilee in Christ. Every day is life. Every day is freedom. Every day is, is, is consecration in God. The poor are made rich and the proud and haughty are brought low. All of creation is consecrated, and, and, and the, the gospel clearly proclaims this. For God so loved the world that he sent his Son to redeem it, to save it. As Paul says in Romans 8, Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains until now. And because Jesus consecrated the world, the Gentiles are brought in. I don't think very many of us have Jewish blood. That means most of us wouldn't be here if it wasn't for this truth, that God consecrated us. He set us apart from the world and from, from sinners. God's grace overflows His banks. He's recreating the world. His mercy is a flood that will flow till it covers the face of the whole earth in this glorious jubilee and Sabbath. And as regards judgment and blessing, the only question is, how much more? How much more? In Christ, God has revealed the hidden things that have been hidden from, from the creation of time. He's revealed the mysteries of the ages to you and to me, to his people. All of the shadows and the types of the Old Testament take shape. And we have the reality. All the types are fulfilled. We now know the purpose of the scriptures. A pure heart and mind. A consecrated and sanctified life. God 
with us. Peace with Him and with our brethren, comfort in the Spirit, and resurrection life, both now and ultimately in eternity. To sin now, to sin in this, this revelation, in this light, is to sin against a greater light. And God will hold all men accountable and judge them in perfect holiness and justice. So how much more? How much more blessing and how much more condemnation? Because the truth is so obvious and so graciously given and applied to us. Finally, we take stock of the succession of the gospel. In Christ, God having redeemed the world, He's purchased it. It all belongs to Him. He makes everything holy when He saves it, when He redeems it. Therefore, all of life is to be rendered to Him. Jesus must reign until all His enemies are subdued beneath His feet. Therefore, as Christians, we must learn to obey the commands of Scripture. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought captive. Consecrate yourselves to God. Commit your possessions to Him and to His service. It all belongs to Him anyway. You belong to Him. Paul calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. It's a glorious slavery. It's a glorious slavery because it's life. Remember that you do not belong to yourself. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You belong to Jesus, so be holy. Be holy, for that's what he saved you for. That you might be holy, an acceptable sacrifice, and a pleasing aroma to God. But that sacrifice is a sacrifice of hope with an eye for the future. God has glory for you. He has reward for you. He has blessing for you. He has glory and life. He has hope and joy. he, He loves you. He loved you. That's why He died for you. And He died for you so that you might live for Him. And in Him is life indeed. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let us pray. We serve an awesome and a powerful God, the God of life, resurrection life. Today we rejoice in His redemption. We celebrate the first fruits of the new creation, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God is making the world in Him, and we have the privilege to participate in that glorious task. We are drawn into His life. We are consecrated and set apart for His service. And here at this table, we are fortified and fed, nourished and strengthened to do His will and to walk in His life. Eat, drink, remember, and confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord, and you have been bought with a price. Christ's body, broken for us, let us pray.
Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.